Okay, uh, we're in the book of Philippians. I think we're about, this is about four talks into the book of Philippians. Uh, We are still in chapter one, and this morning we are actually moving away from kind of the preliminary uh, words that Paul has as he writes these letters you know, accomplishing various things like reestablishing his relationship and uh, encouraging the believers to whom he is writing and giving thanks for them and uh, voicing his prayer for them, uh, which we looked at last week uh, in, in an incredibly feeble fashion. Such was my mental fatigue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's all right. Uh, so this morning... Uh, Philippians chapter 1, we'll, we'll go through verses 12 through 18, and the title of this lesson in Philippians 1, 12 to 18 is, Put the Gospel First, and I stole that uh, title shamelessly from uh, Professor D.A. Carson, who has an excellent short little book on Philippians called Basics for Believers, and in this section, Uh, He says this, which I have lightly adapted for our purposes. I'd like to buy about $30 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to talk about it intelligently, but not so much that it takes over. I don't want to be a radical, fundamentalist, Jesus nut who bothers anyone. I don't want to despise people pride, covetousness, and lust, and I certainly don't want so much of it that I start to love my enemies, repent, deny myself, and contemplate missionary service in some alien, disease-ridden culture. I want respectability, not repentance. I want inspiration, not transformation, I want to be accepted by nice, religious, well-adjusted folk, but I don't want to love anyone too different from my kind of people. I want enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I lose control of my resources and social standing. So $30 worth of gospel, please. That should be a reasonable amount. I think he might have adapted that from another reading that I looked at and tried to find and couldn't. But uh, that, uh, that, that will introduce this idea of making the gospel a priority, which it was for Paul. And the fact of the matter is, this is probably going to convict some of us, okay? It convicts me. But that's what God's Word is to do, is to help us see you're here. You're supposed to be here. This is where Jesus is. This is where the Apostle Paul is. You're over here. So may the Lord help us. May may His grace help us move toward Christ so that we make the distinction between being good, orderly, responsible, well-behaved people and following Jesus Christ out into the world as he seeks and saves the lost. There's a difference there. Uh, Carson talks about, and I, again, adapted this a little bit. He talks about the perennial temptation to opt for a superficial, safe, sanitary, 
suburban substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the culture in which we live. That's the soup that we all are marinating in. It is a culture that doesn't care about Jesus Christ. And all of the stuff and the values and the voices are not pointing us to Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, and the one for whom it is a blessed privilege to deny ourselves and take up our crosses. The world is saying, don't bother with all that. 30 bucks of the gospel is plenty. You don't need it all. That's, what, that's the culture that we're living in. Now, he says there's three symptoms of this, and there may be other ones that are maybe even more tempting and influential in your own mind and heart. But he's talking about these three. First of all, secularization. Secularization. A lot of people who think about culture and study contemporary philosophy are saying, we are in a secular age. And, and they could, you know, I, there's a book in the Germantown Library, 800 pages, this very moral philosopher, Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, a secular age, and he documents the shift away from a religious point of view. You heard Tim Keller talk about it in his book on suffering. Uh, secular age, we don't need God, all we need is health, science, and politics, and we'll be just fine. Secularization marginalizes. You know what that means? It puts it over to the side. Don't talk about your faith. Whatever you believe, my, I have this friend who fulfills all the stereotypes on Facebook that we as evangelicals would want to put on somebody. And she says, yeah, religion for me is a very private matter. It doesn't affect my terribly liberal politics and view on everything else. Uh, secularization marginalizes and privatizes religion. Don't talk about it in public. Don't talk about it on talk shows. Don't talk about it in editorials. Don't bring a Christian worldview to work. We don't have, we don't have room for that here. Privatizes religion and renders the gospel impractical and unimportant. We don't need all this talk about sin and about Jesus Christ being a Savior, we don't need that. This has become disturbing to me as I think about how I think about stuff. I, I am constantly checking myself from this idea that, you know, really, all I want is to be happy and healthy and have well-adjusted kids. I don't really need Jesus. But then I realize... As I look at myself, as I look at my marriage that is statistically defying the odds, two people coming from broken homes, married somewhat happily for 35 years, half of us anyway are, <laughs> me, uh, uh, not without Christ, not without Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that breaks the proud hard-hearted male ego that keeps people tender and repentant. It is understanding that God sent His Son and he, He had to die, not just do some time on earth to teach me a better way. He had to die to satisfy the wrath of a holy God that was going to eternally engulf me, such as my brokenness and rebellion. He, that's what this is about. 
And the only person, I said this to Bryce and Donna this week, God and he alone can change the mind and the heart. Y'all will know where it is. I didn't look it up. One of the prophets says, you can't change the leper's spots. You can't change the color of the Ethiopian skin. And you cannot change the human heart. No matter how much good advice you have or how many self-improvement books you read about having a well-adjusted, you know, functional family. God does that. And there's only one God. Okay, so there's, there's more we're going to say. I'm getting off track. Uh, now, if you don't believe, uh, if, believe me that we're living in a secular culture, and friends, this is Memphis, Tennessee. This is the buckle of the Bible belt, or at least one of the holes near the buckle. Maybe Dallas is the buckle. I don't know. But we're, we're in the culturally conservative religious south where there's a church on every corner, and Christian schools look like community colleges. And your kids growing up in their 20s and 30s are completely secular in many, many cases. Now, happily, not those that are growing up here. It's awesome. I mean, man, I wish my kids had grown up here. I wish my kids had gone to ECS and had Miss Alm as a teacher. Uh, And oh, well, that's the way it is. But uh, anyway, ask this question. What governs the national discourse? What's your favorite media outlet talking about? And I don't care if you're a rank liberal that listens to NPR and watches CNN, or if you're an arch conservative that all you listen to is Fox News, whichever one of those. Now, thankfully, every once in a while, Fox News does present, you know, a worldview that's more compatible with ours, uh, et cetera. But by and large, uh, liberal conservative politics, completely secular. The lifestyles of the people reading the news on both sides of these issues are pagan, not Christian, by and large. There's some wonderful exceptions, wonderful exceptions. So that's cool. Uh, A lot of people, and, and is this true of any of us, that we formally confess the gospel yet functionally ignore it? Kathleen and I spent our first anniversary, celebrated our first anniversary, spent our first summer of marriage in Dublin, Ireland. We were uh, summer missionaries, and we knocked on doors and handed out gospel literature in primarily nice Roman Catholic neighborhoods. And, and the typical response is, what are y'all doing here? We're all Christians. Formally confessed allegiance to the gospel, their brand of the gospel. Functionally, however, when it comes to what I do on a daily basis, how I spend my time, my money, what I think about, what I watch, functionally denying the gospel. Uh, Superficial, surface, yeah, I'm a Methodist, you know, I grew up, blah, blah, blah. We've all got that church story. This is a very faith-forward environment here in Memphis, Tennessee. But the practical reality, friends, of what your, I talked about this last week, what does your prayer life look like? Does it match the Apostle Paul's? What do your prayers sound like? Do they sound like the Apostle Paul's? Are they grounded in Christ? Are they overwhelmed? This is so hard for me, and I'm only 58. You guys got some years on me. Some of you do, some more than others. Uh, I find that the older I get, I'm just tired you know, my emotions are all suppressed by the 
what's the word that we can use in Sunday school? The hardships of life, you know, it's just tiring. It's just, where's the joy? Where's the youthful exuberance and expectation? I, found, I, I experienced a lot of that on top of Mount Rainier, which maybe is why I like to do that. But uh, life will beat you down. You can see it on some of your faces. It will beat you down. But Christ, at every turn, in every decade, can, can lift your spirits and give you hope and joy. That's what he came to do. So that, so that people around you are like, how do you do it? That's what we're heading to in this text. All right? Get on with it. Okay. Uh, point number two, the uh, superficial gospel is because of self-indulgence. You remember Francis Schaeffer? Uh, he talked about personal peace and affluence. That's so convicting. Personal peace and affluence. I don't really care how you're doing as long as I'm okay. And I don't really care how you're doing as long as I've got more than enough to live several lifetimes, okay? Personal peace and self-indulgence, selfishness. That's our tendency. It's all of our tendencies. That's why we follow Jesus. He was God. He was born in a food trough in an obscure village. He was God. He created the world and he He didn't have a change of clothes. He didn't have a place to live. He didn't care because he was filled with the joy of the knowledge of God and and the beauty of divinity. And he offers that to us to the point that we are so captivated with him that we become indifferent to the things of this earth, that we hold them loosely. We love them, but we don't need them. Uh, self-indulgence. And finally, pluralism. This is Carson. Uh, He's got a great book on this, The Intolerance of Tolerance. And he says this, the only heresy is saying Christianity is absolutely true or that anything else is heresy. That's the only heresy in our culture today. That's saying Christianity is absolutely true for all people, for all time. And we need to go throughout the world and preach this gospel. I just had a conversation about this with a guy praying in my office right now. Uh, All of that, secularization, self-indulgence, and pluralism causes us not to dive into the deep end of the gospel of life in Christ. God wants us to understand that salvation is not like heavenly insurance. I'm not going to hell. That's all that matters. I can live like hell. I just know I'm not going there. That's not what it's about. We're to follow Jesus Christ and and let him live his life through us here so that other people get disturbed and say, my life isn't like hers. I I work with her every day. I'm looking, thinking about my wife here. People work with her every day and they know their life isn't like hers. And it isn't so much what she says. It's just who she is in Christ. And they feel the warmth. They see the light. Okay. All right. Now, uh, so all that, to, this is what Paul, this is what you get. This, you hear me, don't you, calling us to be at our knees before our Savior and let him rekindle the realization of his great love and sacrifice for us. 
that's what Paul is doing in this text. All right, so this is Philippians chapter 1. And really, uh, this whole section here, the second half of chapter 1 from verses 12 down to verse 26, uh, and, and uh, uh, th- that whole section is basically one long paragraph And Paul is talking to the Philippians about himself, but it really isn't so much about himself. He's telling them about his imprisonment in such a way that they would understand, and I just said this to my buddy Roger Marion in my office, the gospel goes through the world just like the resurrected body of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was resurrected, he would just go through locked doors and walls and show up at places? That's how the gospel goes through the world. And it doesn't matter what king or president or dictator or culture you're in, the gospel spreads through the world through people, some of whom, you know, pay the ultimate price for living for Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what's cool about Paul, and that's what's convicting to us who live in this suburban, sanitized, substitute for the gospel culture, is that this guy, kind of like our pastor, uh, had this visible passion for Jesus Christ, all right? So this is what Paul says. He's talking about the priority of the gospel. Now, you see at the top of this sheet, the, I, I named this whole study of Philippians what love looks like, okay? And I want to connect those dots for just a moment here. Paul loved Jesus because Jesus saved him from a life of wreckage and called him into his service, And Paul loved Christ. And we're going to hear some lovely testimony from Paul as we get deeper into the letter. Uh, Well, Paul's love for Christ uh, manifested itself in a passionate focus on the gospel that Paul had. Okay? And that shows up in these two texts here. Priority of the gospel in, in spite of two difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstance number one was the fact that Paul was in jail, all right? That's a little issue, uh, you know. And, and then difficult circumstance number two, which is a little hard for me to understand, were what circum- the circumstance was that there were preachers who were preaching Christ, straight up gospel of Christ, but they were doing it from the wrong motives. So those are the two circumstances, prison and pretentious preachers. All right, look, let's look at the first one. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is, I got thrown in jail, I'm, uh, has really served to, notice this word, advance the gospel. That word advance the gospel. That word advance is prokope, prokope. Now, I, I want to make a little point here, and that's why I put this in the box. Uh, in Paul's world, first century Greek culture, uh, it noted progress and prosperity progress and prosperity. Does that sound relevant to our culture? Absolutely. Philosophically, we're all about progress and prosperity, okay? That's why we want the latest and the greatest and the best. Uh, Progress and prosperity in the physical, economic, and social sphere. Our politicians are all about progress in in working out all these, you know, complex problems, etc., of special significance in the Hellenistic world was the technical literary use of prokope and Stoicism and its offshoots to denote the concept of progress 
an advance essentially connected. This is so wordy, but basically they're saying human progress, personal progress, your best life now, growth, okay? You can have everything that God means for you to have here and now, that kind of progress, all right? Now, get this. This kind of ethics of personal achievement is not to be found in Paul, who speaks here of the progress, not of the individual, in embracing and getting the good life, but the progress of the gospel. Now, that's in marked distinction with a lot of preachers who would profess to be Christian preachers who are preaching a gospel of personal growth and prosperity. Paul says what it's really about is the growth of the gospel, which is to say that Jesus Christ would become more and more preeminent among his people. Paul says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Two results of Paul's imprisonment. Uh, One was outside the church and one was inside the church. Outside the church, out in the world, Paul's imprisonment, verse 13 Uh, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of of all these soldiers working for Rome, some 9,000 of them in Rome, so that the word had gotten out. There's this guy in prison, and all he talks about is this Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul is saying, it became known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. I don't know who that is. Nobody really knows who it is. It's just people living in Rome, maybe that were somehow related to, maybe like related to the governmental, you know, hierarchy and structure. I don't, I don't really know. That my imprisonment is for Christ. So the word about Paul's faith got out. Paul is saying... This seems like a bad thing, me getting thrown in jail. But well, you know what really happened? The gospel went out. People heard about Jesus Christ. You guys have been following in the newspaper about the two people over in, uh, where were they? Uh, Liberia, who got Ebola, and they're coming back to Atlanta. Okay? Uh, this, there's one, Kent Brantley, right here. Uh, I want y'all to know, this is Kent talking, Kent in Christ talking, I suspect. I want you to know that as bad as this is, my circumstances have turned out to advance the gospel. Because everywhere I've gone, people have been asking me, what the heck are you doing over there in the first place? And I'm able to talk to them about why I was there. I'm able to talk to them about why I'm a Bapto even Christianese person, you know, according to the family up in Toronto that we heard about earlier. Uh, my circumstances have advanced the gospel. Friends, this is Paul's priority. Nothing can tamper with it. Nothing can hinder it. You can kill me. You can throw me in jail. You can exile me. Whatever you want to do. It's not going to it's not going to hinder the advance of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. Okay, Uh, the second thing, the second problem, oh, incidentally, uh, inside the covenant community, verse 14, most of the brothers, most, not all, we'll see 
that in just a moment. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Man, if that guy over in Liberia got this life-threatening disease, Ebola, and he still is talking about Jesus Christ and is saying, I wish I didn't have it, but God is pleased to use it for the advancement of the... Holy mackerel. Then what about me? That's what Paul is saying. I was thrown in jail, and and everybody's like, is that bad? No, it's okay, because in, in my imprisonment, all the Roman praetoria, not maybe every individual without exception, but by and large, the word is out. I'm a Christian. I got to witness because of it. And, and maybe Mr. Brantley and his colleague would say the same thing. E- even in this terrible situation that we wished had never happened, has still served to advance the gospel and encourage Christians. And listen how he says this. He uses all these words for courage. Confident in the Lord. Are you aware of your own story of grace? Can you share that story where God has put brokenness back together in your life, where God has come through for you, where God has made you less of the jerk than you would be without Him, where, where God has brought you know peace where there ordinarily naturally wouldn't be peace, where God has provided for needs, all of that. Do you, do you know your story of grace, and can you share it like our sister did when her time, when the door was opened? Paul, Paul knew his. And he was confident not to just talk about positive family dynamics, but Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection has changed my life. Nothing else could do that but him. All right, confident. And then bold to speak the word without fear. That's our prayer, friends. It's just that we would be free to talk about what we believe. With, with anybody, without, without, and I've done this so much, calculating, trying to phrase it and say it just right. Forget all that. Just say what you believe and don't worry about what they're going to think about it because you're not taking responsibility for what they think about it. You're just talking about yourself and what you have learned, what you have seen, what God has done in your life. That's what we want. So if you're intimidated to talk about Jesus, may the Lord set you free. May, may you be free and not to talk about religion or your own whatever pet hobby horses and political causes, but to talk about Jesus and, and how beautiful and merciful and gracious and wise and strong and compelling he is. And if that's not the Jesus that you know, if, if, you're a little, if he's a little stale in your mind, go back and read the gospel because he will set you on your heels it, without fail when you read the gospels. You will not understand what he does. You'll be convicted by what he says. And he, there's only one Savior, and it's him. Okay, uh, the second, these pretentious preachers, Paul said most of the brothers were confident, most but not all. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. This is very artfully written here. So there's those that preach from bad motives, envy and rivalry, and those who preach from good motives. 
Those who preach from good motives, verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in jail in this life for the defense of the gospel. The former, so there's all kinds of chiasm and, and all kinds, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking, not knowing, like the ones who preach out of love. These people in their imagination are trying to cause me some trouble. <laughs> Doesn't work. I don't care whether they do it in pretense or in truth. I just pray that Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, if you go back through these two paragraphs, you will hear Paul committed to the word about Jesus, the story about Jesus, the death, resurrection, life, and continued kingdom of Jesus Christ. Is that a priority for us? (laughs) Only Christ can make it so. When we forget, when we replace Christ with something else, we lose our purpose and our potency. We just like everybody, just just like everybody else, just kind of going through life. Nobody ever noticing anything about you, not ever causing any ripples or trouble. And that's not necessarily, that's not the way God wants it. May the Lord show you in a way that you can relate to that he's the mighty Savior and he's still on the throne. And one day he's coming back and, and it might be today. And by his own death, If you trust in Him, your destiny is in eternity with Him. Not just playing some dumb heart on a cloud on a street of gold, but with Jesus, the greatest ever. Let's close in prayer. So, Lord, I don't know. I I thank You for Your mercy. You, You look into our hearts, and many are cold, and many are ignorant, and many have... Uh, Lord, many other loves in front of you. And, and we just plead for your grace that you would exercise our hearts to walk closely with you, uh, to do justice, to love mercy, and to have soft hearts when it comes to you. Uh, Lord, may we be eager uh, to come to our senses and return to our Father. And may we know that as we do so, you always run to us with open arms, with a ring and a robe and new sandals. Uh, Your mercies are new every single morning. May we not forget that. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.